how are you doing today? Thanks very much for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, I'm doing great. Uh, it's just like, you know, life has become a bunch of Zoom calls one after the other. <laughs> and, and I work from home. And so it's it's an interesting debate that we constantly keep on having, which is, you know, uh, I mean, we've been remote first at AppSmith from day one. So, so while there are parts of it that are awesome, obviously, async work and all of that stuff. Uh, but, you know, as a non-engineer in a work from home, I think, <laughs> uh, it's a contact sport, right? So, so yeah, absolutely. What's what's your thoughts on it then? Like, what's because there is this huge debate now in the commercial world: work from home, hybrid, or in the office. I've seen many people with many different views. I find that the most popular one on LinkedIn is that work from home is the way forward. But then, when I was working in a corporate office, I felt a lot of people were like, "No, we need we need to be face to face. Like, we need to come in. It's yeah. quite important." What's yeah. your thoughts? Um, firstly on the LinkedIn part and in social media in general, I feel like it's just so hard to make sense of what anyone is saying anymore. I feel like every, I think I tweeted about this where it feels like everybody is just paraphrasing someone else. Like it's so hard to see original thoughts anymore, right? Like everything is like, Hey, do you know about how this person did X? Uh, and it's just like sort of, everybody seems like a curator these days on social media. Uh, but on this specific topic, I think, I think what, what's great with, um, there's definitely huge benefits, right? So like we wouldn't be able to attract the kind of talent if we weren't fully remote. Um, I mean, like it's incredible. We have people from like 30 different countries. So that's, that's awesome. Um, you can also get, you know, if you work smartly, you can get a lot done because, you know, it's possible where you have teams in different time zones, you discuss in the morning and then somebody else is up in the evening. So it's like you have 24 seven ops in some ways. The, the the challenge is that, you know, like a lot of that serendipity, which happens when you're in the office, you know, the water cooler talks, the ideas, um, especially in, 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 you know, roles like product, marketing, sales, sales for sure. Um, a lot of those things end up becoming a little, you know, challenging. Uh, and that's, that's when you start sort of, you know, uh, missing out. The other part is it's, unless you're in the same city and you're working from home, um, work also becomes a little bit transactional. Where like, it's like, Hey, get this job done. And now it's, it's like, okay, I have no idea what's going on, uh, with, with, with your life beyond work, which has an interesting dynamics around just the, the belongingness aspect. And things like loyalty seems like such a quaint concept in 2023 where people have 10 different jobs. Uh, but I feel like those kinds of things start sort of, you know, uh, mattering. I, I wanted to just add to that last point you made because so I recently started working for a, an American firm as a contractor and I was told by uh, my contact in America who placed me there he said he, he's an Irish guy so I grew up in Ireland so we had that kind of connection and he was like you know sirs you should watch out because it's very different to working in London in an office because these American guys they they don't really have they have a, a much a uh, more defined boundary between social and work. They're not trying to be your friend. They want you to come in, do your job, you know, deliver deliver results and leave. They, they're not too worried about what you do outside of work. It's not a big deal to them. Just whereas you'll find in London, and I've experienced this firsthand, you know, going out for Wednesday drinks, going out for Thursday drinks, dinners, your work, your colleagues basically become your friends. And it's much more common and, and omnipresent kind of a cultural 
uh, a cultural reality. So I, I do question which one is better or if it really depends on the individual. Because I actually, I prefer this uh, kind of come in, do the work, see you later, guys, enjoy my life, and then come back the next day and do the same thing. There's like that disconnect between I'm going to do my own thing and my work colleagues aren't really a part of that or not prying into my business. But I imagine there's a lot of people, as you, you said the key word there, belonging, sense of uh, sense of ownership to organization and loyalty. Because if you said to me, am I loyal to the organization? I'm with, it would be hard to say yes. Not that I wouldn't want to, but it would just be hard to because you know, I'm, I'm, I'm essentially a hitman for hire. I've got a task to do and that's it. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure on the, the difference between the US, UK, um, that distinction, because I think, I think everywhere people love to catch up, right? Um, I think it's about proximity, like something like London is just so, even though it's a massive city, it doesn't feel that large, right? Simply because like everything is connected. You could be staying in zone five and still like end up meeting it's like a 20 minute tube ride, right? Uh, versus in, in the, you know, US, it can get a little tricky unless you are like in a big city, which is densely populated and has great transportation like New York, but smaller like SF, because like person who's coming into work, probably it took him like an hour to reach there because uh, they had to drive like, you know, 50 miles. Uh, so, but, but, but I do think that I, 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 I don't think it's a, cultural thing from a location perspective as much as it's just like what kinds of uh people you have right i think it's it becomes like a company specific kind of a dna um stuff because like yeah. you know beer is available in every country so <laughs> I'm, sure. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sure i'm sure people people catch up uh often but yeah it's it's, it's definitely something which is uh Especially, I think, especially, I think, as your teams become a little larger, right? Because yeah, when you're sure. small, when you're like a startup with five people, it doesn't matter where you are in the world. It's very close knit. Everybody knows uh, what you're doing versus I think the moment it starts becoming like, you know, 30, 40, 50 people is when you start having those. It's almost like there's a step function at every stage, right? Like, and that's when it starts getting a little tricky. Like, how do you manage it? And this complexity. Yeah. Uh, that's a very good point. Yeah. Yeah. It's really true, Risha. I want to go back to something you just said as well about basically a lot of stuff being online being an echo chamber, right? You see the same <laughs> thing over and over. It's true, right? You just scroll through LinkedIn, you see the same post over and over, reformatted, reworded, and it's essentially the same thing. And it's a lot of sheep following the hood. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you, as someone who's experienced in marketing, how can you actually identify what a good piece of content is? You know, whether it's coming from a place, a genuine place or someone saying it's a spark controversy and kind of what your take around that is. And maybe if you've seen a good example of a piece that maybe the last week that stood out to you as not being just a kind of copy paste cookie cutter piece of content. Um, yeah. So a lot of my, um, so there's like a two pronged as, as, as marketeers, you have like a dual sort of, um, approach right where on one side you're thinking of yourself as an individual um which is where you know a lot of the stuff that you mentioned uh becomes relevant and then the second part is you're also thinking as a professional where you're like okay you know what if this is what the world wants uh then you know let's let's go after it. it's like it's a bit like how they say that you know uh, a democracy gets the leaders that they deserve kind of thing right um and so at a personal level i think obviously like you know like i'm 
in the dev tools space. So every morning I'll just go hang out on Hacker News. Uh, there's a lot of great content there. I think the Hacker News community is interesting because the bar for BS is so low, like it just wouldn't even surface at the top, right? So, so a lot of interesting content ends up, uh, I end up consuming from there. And it's not always necessarily highly technical stuff. For example, one of the best written posts that I saw last week was around design. So this was on the top page of Hacker News uh, the whole of last week. Uh, this was a post around the simple things that it was written from a perspective of a designer, but the audience could be anybody, like anybody could understand it. It was like, what are like the 10, 12 things that you can do to make sure that your design is really good? So it's about like font alignment, how you can select color palettes. And as a marketer, that's really relevant because when I'm thinking of content, I'm also thinking about the design that goes with it. Uh, and it was like just really, really interesting uh, to, to see that. Uh, and then there's like a discussion with Spartoff. I shared that with our design team. There was like a huge Slack thread. So that was like really interesting because then you walk away feeling like, hey, I've learned something. Um, and it's gone into a little bit of depth. I think the best kinds of content are either something which exposes you to something completely new, or it could be a thing that you know about, but it provides like an interesting new perspective. Uh, and you've pushed the boundary a little bit further because you added now your personal learnings or, or things like that, right? Especially for um, business content. So so I think that kind of content is always interesting. Um, the Within that also, I think what's what's interesting is like, I feel like good content doesn't have to be perfect, like especially where you're talking about challenges that you face, the struggles, like people want to see, uh, you know, you struggling and then figuring out some sort of, you know, it's almost like a movie, right? Like the hero has to fall into a trap and then figure out the answer, right? So like you go through that journey and that's that like, those are the kinds of things that I find really, really interesting, right? Like, because then you're learning something new. Um, so like typically when I come across content, I, I I look at, hey, what what is there a new perspective that's that's sort of, um, you know, come here. It's not repetitive or things like that. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point because it, it, from what you're saying, it's that experience and the journey is what's important. When content's coming from genuine experience that's authentic and, and unique to that person. Because I, I mean, if we go back to what we were talking about initially, it's like whenever it's repurposed, repackaged in somebody else's words, there's now been like Chinese whispers, 20 people down on LinkedIn, and it's, it's sent out once more. I think it's a good point because a lot of people on LinkedIn who have got a lot of traction always say that, you know, telling a story goes a long way. Whenever you tell a story that's unique to you and it's, it's something that's personal to your life or something that's actually happened that's the most powerful content because people can really relate to a story and i think you always hear that as well human beings being natural storytellers and always gravitating to it to a narrative and to a story very well so i think it's a i'm not yeah. i don't know much about marketing but i believe it's like a core concept in marketing right to tell yeah. a story with your brand I, I mean there's definitely a place for curation but often people want to hear you know, like it's almost like saying you go to a concert, you want to hear the real Led Zeppelin sing. You don't want to see a cover band who's singing Led Zeppelin unless you've specifically been told it's a cover band concert, right? Like, so, mm -hmm. so it, it feels like, like, even if you're not an expert, like talk about what you have done, right? Don't tell me what others have done all the time and then package it like this bite-sized, you know, flashing news 
lights like i mean after a point like because the the thing is that at the end of the day um you then end up feeling a bit of hollowness right you're like what did i do the entire day oh i went through like you know 50 tweets and like <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't help you at the end of the day so it will from a self preservation perspective i think you know there's there's like a lesson there for listeners as well and something i've realized as well cuz i'm a huge fitness fan right and just by being in the gym being around people training posting stuff on instagram i get a lot of inbounds of people asking me oh can you help me out with this and this and that and i never kind of went into it with the intention of wanting to be a coach or educate people but that kind of happens once you build an audience and you've kind of find your find your passion you hone in on it and you advertise it and you make it public to the world so i think what you're saying is extrapolating all from that any listeners kind of struggling what they should do what they should post about write about you must have you know one or two hobbies or interests or something you you read about or just some kind of hobby you do after work or on the weekends that you know probably more than the average person about and just start writing about it i think a lot of the times for people starting now it's like they have a lofty ambitions for themselves in a certain field and they see themselves as the very very bottom rung so they think why should i why do i have anything to offer the world you know nothing that i'm creating um will be of value because there are people out there creating far more than us uh, that i am but then you have to come from a perspective like we did when we started out the podcast actually that there is huge value in having people that are kind of one or two steps ahead of you showing you the way showing you how it's done and giving their experiences because that's the other thing as well if you go on twitter and linkedin you see a lot of people who already have millions hundreds of thousands millions of followers and they're telling you how to do x y and z and a lot of the time it can feel not relatable or it can feel quite detached from just a regular person trying to get traction for their one person business or their small uh their small business right yeah yeah but demoralizing as well i think you know when you see someone with mi- millions of followers telling you this five step process to you know getting your first 5000 followers and you're like well if it's so easy why the hell can't i do it <laughs> yeah all the time is persistence i feel like persistence is such a it's a missing ingredient as well and people want to paint online is like well those hundreds of thousands of followers i got were just by following these steps and it happened like instantaneously and there's always some kind of time element is like how to get x amount of followers in 90 days right and you feel that pressure to do it in a certain time frame but what they're ignoring is the kind of years of expertise and learning through trial and failure that kind of preceded that which isn't yeah. so well documented online yeah that's absolutely you can't get it right the first time it's an iteration hydration right so yeah <laughs> i agree i agree tell us about absmith as well like what do you guys do what's your role as a marketer yeah. how did it all come about what was the pain point you were trying to solve all of that good stuff yeah um so absmith came out of uh, so absmith is a developer tool uh, which helps um, you know engineers build uh, internal applications or custom software um and so the problem that we're really trying to solve is you know like in when when you guys um, either in your day to day work or something uh, there are consumer facing apps like deliveroo and you know uh, transferwise or something like that uh, but then you also have tools which are internally facing so like if you're in a company the users of those tools are just your internal employees you know think of expense reimbursement apps so think of like a dashboard uh, which is built which helps you track uh marketing metrics right or like when you when you when you ask for like a refund from a food delivery company uh you get on the chat 
that chat is going somewhere and then there's a person probably there who is pressing some buttons to get you your refund, right? Um, all of those things typically require a lot of engineering bandwidth. Um, and, you know, you can't buy off-the-shelf off SaaS products uh, for that because essentially what happens is the data in your organization is sitting in multiple different places. Some of it is sitting in SaaS products uh, like Stripe or Salesforce or whatever. Some of it is sitting in your own databases. Um, and so essentially what a lot of companies try to do is they try to create some sort of a UI layer on top of this data uh, so that you can democratize the access to this data to other teams who can now perform various functions to do that, right? So it could be the support team, it could be the sales team, uh, it could be the HR team. Um, and this is a this is a pretty big problem uh, because I think almost 30 to 40% of all the software which is written in the world is, is going towards these kinds of internal tools. So if you think of like a large bank, like a high street bank in the UK, they probably would have a thousand such internal tools which is running their entire business. And it's often an engineer who's building this because it deals with a lot of sensitive data. So you have like security issues. So you want something which is like, uh, uh, you know, uh, robust and can be used by an engineer. But at the same time, you know, it's it's like engineers hate working on this stuff, right? Because because they want to work on the cool consumer facing stuff like a designer would never want to work on this because they're like why should i work on something which has a thousand users when i can work on an app which has a million users right that's why most of these tools end up looking like crap right like like even something like airline reservation systems you know like when you go to the airport and you look at that person typing away to get your boarding card like if you actually oh, peep God, open yeah. look at what that interface looks like it looks like something built in 1995 right probably was built in 1995 no, it's very very topical given the whole situation in the US right um was it delta airlines i think they had this whole kind of they shut down for like a whole day or a week or something because they couldn't book in anyone and they didn't even know where their planes were in the sky at any one time because of this literally archaic backend system. I'm sure still running on kind of like Windows 98, as you said, just like really old fashioned. It's so unsexy and no one wants to attack it. Um, and I think it's, as you, as you made the point, it's like people aren't aware of it because you would have had to have worked in one of these old fashioned industries that say things like construction, um, more like uh, transport infrastructure, airlines, and have exposure to just how poor these backend systems are for you to even realize it's a problem. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and 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 technology is advanced. There's a lot of new age tools. It's just that they are very complicated, um, and they require a lot of effort. So if you just have to, like, typically what happens is that there'll be a company. Uh, they'll be like, yeah, we just have to make this one tool. It's simple. It's almost like death by a thousand paper cuts. It's when you're building your 10th such tool, you realize that you have to maintain the nine other tools that you have. Um, and like all your engineering bandwidth is going into these things. Um, and so, and so it's, it's, it's like, it's interesting. Like we, 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 we sometimes like to joke that what we are doing is helping developers build apps that fill gaps. Uh, you know, because there are always gaps in different parts of your product or your processes and these apps come and fill it and you can do it really quickly. So, so that's, that's what AppSmith does. I lead marketing at the company. Uh, I joined a couple of years back when we were, I think around 10 people, we're about 130 people right now. Um, and, and it's, it's, it's been a super interesting experience because prior to this, I used to run, uh, an HR tech 
software company and and you can imagine right like from marketing to hr which you know honestly are not the most tech savvy department in in uh, a company to going towards developers in an open source environment which are the most opinionated edgy personalities out there it's like you know the changing of the guard uh, so so all the things that you learn in marketing for non engineering personas uh, and some of it which some some of these things are like like thought of as like you know ground truths uh, you start testing some of those assumptions when you move towards developer marketing you know something as simple as um, you know one of the things you hear in marketing is um, talk about the benefits and not the features right like that's that's like a like a standard advice that you get in most marketing uh, playbooks um you know in a lot of cases that might not necessarily apply uh, in developer tools companies because these are highly highly you know opinionated folks who also like to do things themselves so they are like you know don't give me the marketing spiel uh, just tell me what you do right like give me like a list of 20 features and then i will decide whether you are the best in class anything or you know like let me be the judge of that and like there's no it's not your position to tell them what the benefits are right because a lot yeah. of the time i'm sure these tools they can mold in whatever way they want to and use however they want and build on top in the way that they want to so they just need to have a base understanding of what it is you offer and then they can go and run off with all the possibilities yeah and and ads don't work the same way like like most engineers have ad blockers you know like yeah. <laughs> what are you going to do running an ad when they can't even see it you know so like it's it's very interesting experience uh how, how do you how do you get to them then do you do you go direct to them do you find little communities and groups and that's how you infiltrate yeah, it's, it's i think i think authenticity is super important um i think having um involving the entire company especially your engineering and product teams to you know create content i think i think it sort of comes down to influence right like the strongest thing here is word of mouth people are more likely to come to you if they believe in what you're doing and if you know they hear about it from other friends or they have a good experience um and so influence ends up becoming really important one of the hottest roles right now in tech companies especially like you know these developer tools companies um is this role called developer relations uh and so or a developer advocate and what these people do is essentially these are engineers who also create content and do communities so these are people who can write code uh really like they might not be as accomplished as engineers themselves uh who build the product but they're pretty good and they also like content so like all these people that you see on youtube who are creating these youtube tutorials or they're going and speaking at conferences like these people end up you know almost developing a cult like status within the organization because they are the face of your company they are the ones on all your you know external communication so that becomes a really really important important role even though they might sit in marketing or have their own org uh so and and they they cost as much as you know regular engineers <laughs> so this is exactly so we were talking about uh with another guest the other day basically about saying that the coder of the future is going to be kind of managing upwards and become more of a manager and have his fingers in more pies as opposed to just being kind of heads down 90% of the time coding he's going to be more in charge of you know managing processes 
um, you know, coordinating more with the outside world as well. And you see more and more product managers as, uh, as well do it. I know in like scale-ups, particularly companies that are looking to grow quickly, it's like, how can we onboard the right kind of people without, you know, bloating our headcount up and kind of eating into our into our revenues? And yeah. a big way to do that is by hiring people who can both be developers and more like product managers and do some outreach and talk to customers as well. So it's becoming more of a kind of jack of all trades um, role. That, that's just what I've seen. I don't know if you have a differing opinion on that. I mean, the joke is that I think eventually all of us will just become people who give prompts to chat GPT. Uh, right. <laughs> anything else, like that's going to start becoming a skill uh, for regardless of like whether you're in tech or non-tech. Uh, but but I think I think uh, I think there's 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 a role for all kinds of people. Specifically in engineering, there's very two there's there's two clear paths, right? There's people that want to be individual contributors. These are people that want to code and want to go deeper into the craft. Uh, and they don't want to manage people at all. They just want to be a one person, uh, you know, uh, contributor and just keep on getting better. And then there are other people who want to, you know, start managing the ops part of engineering uh, and, and really start managing people um, and, and you know, become a better people manager to make sure that the software is shipped on time and work with, you know, the product teams and things like that. I feel like there's both these parts. Uh, because like you put one person who doesn't like managing people in a role where they want to do that, they're going to quit. You know, they're like, I won't because, because as a people manager, you also stop actively coding. Uh, and so you slowly start, start getting your hands off, right. And you become more like a project manager, highly technical, but it's, it's like two completely different, um, sort of streams. It's almost like writing, right? Like where you can either become like an editor who is moving into, you know, uh like managing a team of writers or you can just be like a really seasoned uh writer who's super senior like a columnist or whatever right like right. it's i think it, it works yeah. engineering. I, I think i think a lot of engineers learn that in their first three to five years once they move past the the junior stage of their career yeah. you sort of see that a lot a lot of times unfortunately you either have a manager who you as a quirky opinionated engineer think is incompetent and you're like why the heck am I taking orders from this person? Doesn't even know how the code actually works because I built it from the ground up. See, I've seen that quite a lot, and, and it's often it's, it's often an internal tool that they've built because those are the first things that they're going to be asked to be built. <laughs> Absolutely right, and then yeah. it's like they then turn around and think, I think I would be in a much better position down the line to be able to help a junior team grow because I guess a lot of the technologies, a lot of Big technologies are still coming out on a regular basis. This technology, as you know, obviously is ever evolving. It's never static. So just because someone graduated from top college 15 years ago in computer science, does unless they've been consistently learning for the last 15 years, doesn't necessarily mean they're going to know their stuff with all the new technology that comes out today. In fact, I remember hearing a CTO of uh, a biotech company say he was he was a professor at uh, at Imperial College London, and he actually said. We 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 were in, we were interviewing him uh, for a screening interview during a period of time where I worked in the venture capital space, and he said, you know, most of our team who we hire are PhD graduates because machine learning is one of those areas of technology where the younger you are, the better because you you have more of the skills that that are actually applied day to day. The the younger people are much much more advanced at building proper machine learning pipelines than you know somebody who's got 30 years of uh, SaaS experience and software development. 
Um, but I think it's absolutely necessary as well because as an engineer, you're essentially a creator, right? You're able to cre- create things from from arguably nothing, and you yeah. realize you have, you have a lot of power with, with the ability to do that. So if you can kind of level up with other softer skills and apply the same engineering prowess alongside those skills, the value of you, your contribution, and the value that you can bring into the world is a lot greater, it's a lot more powerful. But interestingly, and it would be interesting to hear your thoughts on this, given that you've, you've now started working full-fledged with engineers more often. Well, during my time at Imperial College, when I was there, I found a lot of my colleagues, you know, much, much better engineers than myself, much better software developers, much better coding, but consistently lacked ambition and self-confidence of what their skills could actually achieve because my mentality you can ask james about this is let me learn how to become like a a 5.5 or a 6 out of 10 coder and then the freedom that will give me to create interesting tools that i could potentially sell commercially is huge whereas a lot of my peers who are like much like you know 8 out of 10 9 out of 10 10 out of 10 coders they would always they would always pick at things going this class could be written more efficiently or this is not good enough and it's like at that point they're forgetting they're getting bogged down in the features and forgetting about the potential commercial benefit because at the end of the day it's like if you're selling a software to, let's say a marketing team they don't they don't really care like whether your algorithm speed is you know n log n or you know n squared like they just want to know is it going to work is it going to work it, can i can i think I, it's like it's, it's, also like a, from this. it's like a personality kind of thing as well right if you think about an artist who just has a love for the game and he just loves painting or drawing or whatever i couldn't give a damn if anyone else likes what he makes or if it has commercial value or if he can sell it he just wants to get in the weeds and like spend hours by himself painting from a non-coder's perspective, i.e. me, that's how I see a lot of hardcore programmers. I kind of see that, I draw parallels between that and like an artist who just loves his craft intrinsically rather than it's always really, thinking what's the commercial uh, angle. It's really interesting you're saying that actually the founder of uh, Y Combinator, Paul Graham, yeah. uh, actually wrote a book called Hackers and Painters. Uh, and, uh, you know, like... Never, uh, never seen that. So yeah, yeah, my my Z Combinator will be uh coming in uh twenty twenty four. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. I think I think uh, uh, it's definitely a craft. Uh, I mean, you can use you know frameworks and things like that, but like uh, I think I think it's definitely a craft. It's also it's also the kind of things which uh, you can. It's it's also very sort of community based. I think like because. The tech world is more, especially with things like GitHub and all these different communities, you can get a lot of feedback on your work very, very quickly. And so the people that start seeing that and find like a interesting peer group, which may not even be part of your college now, given that we are all in a virtual world, uh, can have a pretty transformational impact in the early days where you even decide where you haven't picked your major or, you know, like things like that. And, and you might figure out where to spend your time. Um, I think the other thing is also around what does a place value? You know, so if you look at the Bay Area, for example, um, there's a reason no VC there wears suits uh, because that is frowned upon. Like the real value there is using, you know, technology to create something. Those are the people who are compensated the most. Those are the people who are celebrated. Like nobody talks about, oh, here's his hotshot banker in San Francisco, right? You'd never see that headline. Uh, I think, I think in the UK, uh, what I've noticed is that like 
industries which are like highly valued are 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 things like uh, you know law or or private equity uh, finance you know more um, traditional career paths yeah. yeah yeah and and those are the industries that are also they might have the largest profit margins the compensation there is is sort of uh, or consulting right like it's it's on the higher end you know compared to technology um like it's it's hilarious how when i speak to a lot of companies in the uk they still call tech as it like like it's almost insulting uh, like like which engineer wants to be called it man like like it is the dude with a ponytail sitting in a warehouse you know we need low low loads of agri emails now nice and low so like i feel like you can, you can, you can make you can you can make out uh, like some of these little nuances you know like even like you know my my previous startup which was in the hr tech space here's how we figured out the tech savviness of our clients um a client was a, which was very engineering heavy um would would call like the word they would use is tech okay um the client which was a more business person had not much idea about technology but wanted to be where the cool kids were uh, they would call it digital you know so the moment i would hear the word digital i'm like okay that's a non engineer uh, who wants to get in on the action right typically yeah. see like a lot of traditional companies like the companies in the 50 100 uh, they will use the word digital it's, it's, it's so true when i was working at now west they every any kind of forward thinking you know the area of the office that had like the sofas yeah. and the colored colored bits of furniture the whole team was like digital transformation digital implementation digital right. something is such yeah. a is such a corporate go to yeah and then, and then when you hear it you're like okay like that is so far it comes with a lot of baggage right there's a stigma around it uh, yeah it, it it could mean two things it could mean that okay this is going to be a big deal for us because now we can say whatever we want and get away with it uh, or it's going to be a really long deal to make because you're going to be explaining half the time you know uh how other companies in your space are so far ahead or maybe it's not even an important part in your business or whatever right like like that's how we sort of we had like a mental radar <laughs> to figure out where companies fell on a spectrum or at least the leadership fell on the spectrum so mm-hmm. interesting well rishab tell us uh, but i wanted to ask you about good fellas yeah angel syndicate what's yeah. that all about what do you tell our listeners yeah um so uh good fellas obviously the name comes from the gangster movie uh good fellas you know he's a good fella uh and uh, so so are you are you investing in business or are you extorting them <laughs> <laughs> definitely, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> uh we love the company they invest in the way mob members love each other uh but the debatable uh, but I guess I'm, 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 I'm never known any stabby stabbing your backs in the mob that's for sure no violence whatsoever it's all love I, I, I don't I don't want to be one of Rishab's portfolio companies and start making a loss I might end, I might end up at the bottom of the Thames <laughs> uh so so i think uh i i used to angel invest in in companies on an individual level um 2020 so between 2015 and 2020 i was primarily living in india but traveling a lot to the us and the uk um and then 2020 was when 
in the middle of the pandemic was when I relocated to the UK um, and started living here. And, you know, one of the things that happened I, that I realized was that my entire network uh, and ecosystem, especially in technology, was either in the US or in India. Um, and all my friends in the UK were all bankers and consultants. Uh, so, you know, one of the things that happens in ecosystems is that if you're out of the ecosystem, it doesn't matter how good you were earlier, you sort of get out of the action and you're very quickly forgotten. So, so there was a two-pronged sort of reason to even start Goodfellas. One was that I wanted to have an excuse uh, to stay in touch with all the people that I'd met uh, coming to the UK, you know, have that sort of connection with India and the US. Um, and so Goodfellas became a great way where I would just bring together all these people and be like, hey, I'm going to be investing in a bunch of technology companies. Uh, and these are people who are operators, entrepreneurs, you know, so on. Uh, let's do this together. You know, uh, many of these... Where, whereabouts in India were you based? In Bangalore. Oh, nice. I'm currently in Wysag, going to Hyderabad in two weeks and then Bangalore. Oh, I, I, I grew up in Hyderabad. So even though I'm oh, from nice. originally, which is the northernmost state, uh, because I did all my schooling, uh, my Telugu is better than my Kashmiri and like... Oh, nice. We yeah, like, if, if, James, if, James, if James wasn't here, we could break out into some Telugu, but yeah. we'll, spare, we'll spare him the, and, spare him the troll. And, and I'm so happy that I've finally found an Andhra biryani place in London. Because I feel like London is huge on the North Indian. When, when normally people say Indian cuisine, what they mean R is... Rishabh, you should go to East Ham. Yeah. East, Ham is the, East Ham is the place. Dude, I found a biryani place on Deliveroo called Toli Choki Biryani, man. Like, <laughs> nice. that's, that's the region in Hyderabad, uh, you know. Uh, <laughs> so that it's, you, you, when I saw that, I was like, it's such a specific name, uh, you know, that it's got to be good, right? Like, you can't come up with a name like that and then not deliver, right? So, so yeah, they're going to make a lot of money from me. Uh, but, but just coming back to the, the Goodfellas thing, I think on one side is just sort of getting in. Uh, you know, a lot of these operators uh, and, and like sort of advice beyond the money kind of thing. Um, and then the second part is obviously like a lot of entrepreneurs were, uh, you know, reaching out to me for for either help or advice. Um, and, and I wanted to put my money where my mouth is uh, specifically focused on B2B SaaS businesses and developer tools businesses, because that's what I understand. I spent my entire life in B2B, uh, whether it was in robotics or HR tech and now dev tools. I don't understand B2C uh, at all, uh, but like, you know, B2B businesses just wanted to sort of, you know, uh, meet a lot of entrepreneurs all across the globe and figure out ways to help them. So that's how it started. What, what, what kind of stages and geographies do you look at or are you geography agnostic? Um, fairly geography agnostic, though, like truth be told, you know, a lot of these companies do end up being incorporated in the US. They might, their operations might be anywhere in the world, but you're incorporated in the US just because it makes sense, you know, from a future perspective, whether it's for fundraising or like if you want to get like global contracts and things like that. Um, so most of these are like open cover companies, but like there's, there's companies across most of them right now, at least in my portfolio are either in the, in Europe, US or, or India. Um, and is it is it difficult to incorporate a U.S. company as a non-U.S. citizen? Because I'm I'm imagining for let's say some of our listeners, not at all, in, not at all. It's it's okay. it, you can throw money at that problem, and especially now with uh, so many initiatives like Stripe 
Atlas program, for example, uh, you know, often your payment gateway provider helps you. Like it becomes like a like Angel List, Stripe. All these people now have you know extension services where they want to find these companies in the earliest days, um, and so you know, like a lot of them help. But there are other avenues to do that as well. So it's like you don't even have to visit the US to set up a you know US and okay. because that's that's quite useful to our listeners in case anyone's in. Yeah. Asia, India, or even Europe, and they're looking to kind of have a, a global outlook with their company to incorporate a business in the US and you know have your operations elsewhere. Yeah, the only the only difference becomes that, and that's a call you ever take, which is that you know, like obviously, if you're a US company, then you don't benefit from things like EIS and you know some yeah. of the things. But like the question I would ask is that you know, if you're a B two B company, uh, you know, like. Like your market is not going to necessarily be Europe. It might be like you might get some absolutely traction, but like individual markets are not that big here. So you are going to look at uh, the US, and the earlier you do it, the better. Uh, You know, uh, this is this is something that one of our contacts in India actually told James recently. We had a discussion about it where saying a lot of Indian companies actually target the U.S. market because the USA is a, is a culture and an environment that Indian people intrinsically understand from, you know, watching TV series and shows. Everybody's got an uncle sitting in the U.S. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And everybody, everybody grows up watching HBO whenever they're not watching a star, star, star sports. So, yeah. Um, yeah. But Rishabh, tell us, tell us more about kind of what you look for in a SaaS company because, of course... SaaS companies aren't all created equal. So what's a great investment target for you? Um, so when I started out initially, um, I, I I like to come in in the super early stages. Uh, you know, often I'd like to typically invest in around pre-seed, seed, uh, in some cases at the Series A stage. Uh, can, you just, can you give our listeners as well exactly kind of yeah, uh, you know, r- rough metrics for when that may be. So a pre-seed would be X number of users to, you know, yeah. or if in the case of MRO, just give us a rough idea. <laughs> you can be pre-revenue in all the three cases. Uh, uh, one of the things you notice is at least, you know, like like it's 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 not necessarily about revenue. Uh, it's at least what I look for in the early stages is is there a clarity around what you want to do. Um, are the founders like really invested in the problem? Um, and so typically I would either invest in founders that I personally know from before or people who've been thinking about a problem uh, really, really hard. So for example, if you've been like a banker all your life and I haven't, I don't know you or I, you don't come via referral and now you're deciding to start a SaaS company in a completely unrelated space, uh, chances are I would I would probably not be the best investor because like it wouldn't it wouldn't make sense to me. Uh, but if that same banker was somebody that I knew for a long time, uh, then it's really more like you're betting on the person. In the early days, you either bet on the person or you bet on the space. I I go more towards a person um, because I feel like business models can pivot and things like that. Um, in terms of the stage, typically you know your first round tends to be a pre-seed or friends and family kind of around. This is where you raise anywhere from, you know, uh, like, I don't know, 250 to maybe like 500K. Sometimes it goes up to a million. Uh, at this stage, you might or might not have like a working prototype 
you might have done some customer research. Uh, you might have some early users. Uh, in in some cases, you might have paying customers as well, but you haven't figured out your pricing, your business model. The product is not fully fleshed out. It's super super. Uh, you know, early. And so what you really have to fall back on is, hey, are you clear about the problem, right? Like, uh, and how do you validate that problem, right? Either you're coming from that space or like you've done this much customer research and stuff like that. So I feel like like that, and like, who are your co-founders? Like, what is the core team looking like? You know, like, like I think that is what really matters at, at that at pre-seed stage, right? And like, are you building what customers actually want, uh, you know, so... And Rishabh, what are the typical investment amounts that you would invest personally? So, so um, typically you look for allocations which are around you know hundred to two hundred thousand uh, dollars. It can go higher. Uh, the the challenge with running a syndicate is that it's not a fund, so it's not like people have already given you that amount and it's sitting in your bank uh it's a lot like sales so for every deal uh yeah. you would it almost becomes a marketing campaign at some point right where you're like hey i'm going to invest in the, this company are you interested no not all the members of your syndicate might be interested in that deal so you might have to follow up with a few people so there's like an operational angle uh to some of these things but then you bring them on board saying that you know i think they could really value from your in fact you use your investors in the syndicate also as a way to vet some of these deals uh because you know you end up getting expertise from multiple different areas um individually the people invest like there's no limit like angel list has a minimum limit of like i think a thousand dollars but individually people can invest anywhere between what i have seen is between two to like maybe twenty thousand dollars in a deal but like when you pull it together typically it comes to anywhere between 100 to 200 thousand dollars so that becomes uh a meaningful that does two things one is that it it helps the entrepreneur it's always like the entrepreneur always wants to deal with fewer people right like nobody wants to deal with 50 investors so if you come in and take a large chunk of like say if you're doing like a one million dollar round you've got a vc who's putting in half a million uh you've got maybe another accelerator or vc who's putting in some something else and then you have like this syndicate who's putting in 100k you can pretty much get the round done with like three or four different touch points, right? Like, uh, versus if you were to start getting individual checks, it starts getting a little complicated because now every time you have a board meeting, you have to like get everybody's signature, right? So it's not only like them on like Cedars and Crowdcube and these guys also do, right? They pool in that capital, so yeah. So do you, do you usually have an investor in the syndicate that effectively you know leads the round not from a financial point but from a point of they will manage the process and be the touch point for the entrepreneur or yeah you're you you're, ever... you're looking at that guy so i i, I manage okay. for each of my deals uh it's just okay. this is a part-time thing uh which i do uh because my full-time day job is is uh is a rapsmith uh and it's just a good way to even because of the space I'm in, I end up meeting a lot of entrepreneurs because AppSmith, for example, can integrate into pretty much most other tools out there. So so often, you know, there's a nice balance between I might be doing something for AppSmith, 
but in that process, I might come across an interesting company. And so now I can reach out to that founder uh, saying, hey, I'd love to learn about your business. And genuinely, we see how that can help AppSmith. But then on the side, also look and ask questions like, you know, uh, are you fundraising? What's it looking like? And that disarms the entrepreneur because like if an investor reaches out, they look at it very differently, right? Because they're like, they're going to be guarded versus if it's just like two founders or operators talking, it's a much more open conversation around hey what and you know like and then investment is it just follows very naturally right like you might say hey you know you've got a great business is that it might not be right for the syndicate uh you still then remain friends uh you still figure out how you can you know work with each other in other contexts or maybe like you know i love this thing like I'm, i'm i'm just amazed by what you're doing like i would love to uh you know just be part of this round so so i feel like that um and that's one thing that i tell anybody who's starting a syndicate is that if you're an operator, uh, it's it's an interesting model where you do a syndicate uh, without doing this full-time, unless it becomes like a big fund and, you know, you've got plans for that. But like, otherwise, it's a great thing to do on the side because it, it, it creates a virtuous loop between your work, what you're doing, and, you know, these sort of hobbies, so to call it, right? Uh, so so it, it, it's, it almost becomes like, catching up with friends for drinks, right? So you're like, hey, let's, here are three companies. What do you think about? Because the other thing I noticed, actually, I forgot to mention this, which is that, you know, the reason you lose track with people. So if you think about the friends who you are in touch with from university or school, that number is very low, right? Like the friends you're in touch with from school is probably a smaller number than the ones you're in touch with from university. Because at some point you realize that you have either A, outgrown them it can go work both ways or like you don't have things to talk about anymore right yeah. like like what do you because unless you're living in the once geographical proximity is removed how do you stay in touch with people right uh, you need some common ground to be a shared interest or whatever right so something like daily flow becomes a great way because there's a mutual interest in that technology uh, somebody i might otherwise who's in a different part of the world a deal in a space of their interest is a great way to be like, hey, it's been a while, let's catch up. I want to discuss something with you. And it's and now it's, and that that becomes a great way to like build, uh, you know, friendships over time and 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 stuff like that, right? That, that's the other part, which which I really like about um, this, this model. So it's so important to reach out and to reach out to people in your, your network, your second degree and third degree connections, put yourself in front of people, Try and maximize the number of kind of serendipitous relationships and connections you may make at events, you know, whether in person or online, you know, calling up someone who works in the space you're interested in. I'm a big advocate for that. And it definitely, I agree from, from personally as well. It's just unearthed so many different, you know, new relationships, new friendships, connections that I can make with other people and this and that. Uh, but I wanted to touch as well, Rishab, on your experience um, raising from Sequoia, right? In your last company, I, I understand you raised from Sequoia. Obviously a huge name. Can you tell us about what that was like, how you kind of got in front of them, how you closed the deal, um, you know, what the whole getting fundraising process was like for you? Yeah. So so Square is obviously like one of the greatest investors. Uh, you know, they've invested in Google and, you know, like Apple and like it's it's their 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 legend, right? Um uh, we raised from Sequoia's India office, which is a pretty large fund in itself. Like Sequoia's four offices. I mean, they recently obviously launched a UK office uh, a couple of years back, uh, but otherwise, like their big hubs are China, India, US, and Israel, right? Um, and so the the India office is pretty big. They manage like you know a couple of billion dollars uh, in capital. Uh, very active. Um, 
because I had been part of the early stage ecosystem for a while, um, <clears throat> like my co-founder um, and I, we've been part of that ecosystem for a while. Um, it, 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 it really was more about just keeping them updated around uh, just having a conversation keeping because this they were they didn't they weren't the first investors in the company so we had already raised capital uh, uh, from another fund called matrix uh, uh, which is also you know based in the US and China and India uh, and they're, they're pretty awesome as well uh, and so when you're in the sec like when when you're raising your next round as opposed to the first round the dynamics are a little different uh, because people already know about you uh, as a company, because your first round would have given them press release, that you're already on the radars of a bunch of different uh, funds. The second thing is that India doesn't have that many, like at a series A stage, um, there aren't that many options. At least they weren't back then. So you have like six or seven funds that can afford to put in a 10 to $15 million check. Uh, and so it's a pretty small ecosystem. Um, what you typically do is like typically with these things, there's two things, right? One is you want to have access already. So we meet them at events, you get connected from common friends, you, you know, uh, might know somebody in their portfolio company. And so you get introduced via that, right? Uh, and then the second point is just sort of staying in touch and keeping them updated. Because typically the way a lot of these rounds happen is that there has to be some trigger event, right? Either A, you are doing so well financially, you don't even need the money, uh, in which case, you know, you don't have a problem of fundraising because you don't need the money and everybody's going to be coming after you to, and they'll beg you to take the money. Or like most other companies, you've hit certain milestones and now you're looking for, you, you're still burning cash and now you're looking for the next set of investors. Uh, and so it's always good to keep them updated. So with Sequoia, they knew how we were thinking about it multiple conversations around value alignment does this model make sense and so that's that's how you know that that uh deal ended up happening the other part is also you have a lot of um i feel like over and above other investors you also i'm a big proponent of having really solid angels on your cap table uh because you know investors have obviously they're awesome and and you know they sit on your board and they have like a multiple other sort of portfolio companies and you can learn a lot from them. Uh, but having good set of angels are also good uh, because, because like they give you sort of advice from the trenches. Uh, they are less concerned about what happens to their capital because the fund has to return money to the shareholders, right? Versus an individual angel, like they're doing it out of the goodness of their heart, right? Like, like uh, and they don't put in that, large check. So, so I feel like having a really solid set of angels who are connected to the ecosystem also definitely helps because these angels also act as VC whisperers, right? Like the entire VC ecosystem is, it's, it's really sort of like a close knit community. Everybody knows everyone. I'm sure it's the case in the UK as well, right? Because like every investor, most of them would have gone to the same schools. They would have come from similar backgrounds. People would know each other. Somebody might have been your colleague a few years back. And so, it's 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 a bit like an echo chamber where you want to get in, right? And so it doesn't matter how you get in. You can either get in from the VC route, but you can also get in from the the entrepreneur route. When I first came to the UK, the first thing I did was I just mailed every entrepreneur that I could find, cold emailed them, mailed every VC just to say hi. You know, like I'm new here. 
what are you guys seeing this is what my learnings is uh and and i feel like that applies to fundraising as well right like you want to definitely start early you want to uh you know build those connections uh because like the worst thing you can do is sort of think about fundraising when you have like six months of cash left uh because then the investor also knows that so you might not get such good terms uh versus if you're showing somebody your journey you're showing a momentum you're showing like a progress uh you know it's always uh, a better approach uh to to do it and obviously you want to be clever about what you share at which stage uh you want to keep some cards close to you and then you know you want to reveal them uh in 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 due course uh while while obviously like you know uh being being truthful and everything but like i think i think it's a bit of a it's a bit like dating right like uh <laughs> like you want to put your best uh foot forward uh and and as you feel more comfortable you want to sort of open up right you're like hey these Absolutely. are out. honestly that's why we need the capital right these are the things that we have figured out and this is what's working really well uh these are the things we need to reach to the next stage so so I feel like like that uh, becomes fairly important. That's what worked for us. Yeah, it's really, really good information, actually. E- even from the standpoint of you coming to the UK, wanting to get integrated with what's going on, and then just kind of reaching out to people just to say hello as well. Just uh, yeah. how how detailed were, were those cold uh, outreach emails? Were they <laughs> big or did you keep them brief? Or? Yeah, you know, they were... Uh, so you, it's, you, you do a lot of tests. You you figure out what works for different kinds of people. Um, I think with entrepreneurs, it's it's a very emotional connect. Often, uh, it would be like, "Hey, I'm new here," and like I feel like most cold emails, there is either an emotional connect there, or there's like a relevance angle there, right? So if I would, uh, so I would make like a list of all these folks, um, and then talk about you know. Uh, spaces that I might have worked in, which might be similar, or like every entrepreneur loves if you try their product and give them like product feedback, like like rather than hey, let's just catch up a coffee. You don't know me. It'll be like hey, I tried your product, I loved it. Here are three or four things I noticed that you could do better. By the way, I just came to the UK, and this is what I've done in the past. Uh, you know, would love to catch up and and uh, uh, you know, just learn your experiences about building a company, right? Like that 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 worked really well. Uh, with VCs, it was a little bit more like you know uh, i'm figuring out my next steps uh it's like a reset in my life uh i'm new here uh and you know just wanted to understand uh more about it from your uh what you're seeing so like for them it was more like okay let me meet this sort of senior leader who could potentially become maybe a hire for one of my portfolio companies right so like that yeah. potentially would be even though it's, I didn't say that and they are not saying it, but like that's the undertone of the discussion. Right? Like yeah, that would be the underlying like, angle, yeah. They would want to talk to me or they'd be like, you know what, maybe we can convince them to start up again and then I would love to invest in that. You know, like these are the things sort of which are playing through to the investors. Uh, Home with value essentially, right? I mean, you just, you opened with like, I, I came here and I sent out loads of emails saying hi, but it was yeah. no more than that, right? You're, you're actually, you're not just saying, hey, this is like a little text that's going to get aired, but you're actually coming with value and they can immediately see, all right, this guy, while not explicitly stating it, definitely has some latent value he can offer me or vice versa, right? Yeah. And, and there's always 
uh, a value that that anyone can offer, right? Like it's it's you just have to sort of figure out it. It could be something as simple as uh, you know, let me just connect you to five six other people uh, who could benefit your portfolio, right? Or it could be something like, hey, looks like you're doing something in this space. I know a bunch of people. Why don't we do a meetup in your office? You know, like anything, like because I think I think the VC space and the entrepreneur space, it's become so competitive. Uh, that anything that you can tell them which can help them differentiate uh, can be super valuable to to both parties, right? So like entrepreneurs are always thinking about their product and hiring uh, uh, and, you know, investors are always thinking about, hey, we have 50 other VCs and the entrepreneur can take money from any of these VCs. How do we stand out, right? Like what is it that we can do? And that's why you see like VCs also become more like full stack agencies in some way where it's not just about the money but now you have a talent function you have an event function you have a content function and like you know uh and things like that versus literally like earlier it was just like i'm a person with money in my bank account and i can go invest right like i think we've come far from those days and today when you look at vcs they they, they look like full service agencies right like when you look at the kind of capabilities that they're seeing to develop absolutely um, yeah which is which is interesting uh and then find yeah, and if you're trying to get into the space, trying to find where you fit in within that environment, because it's no longer. I think speaking to VCs as well is like they want you to be hard on one thing instead of being a generalist or you know someone who can do the full remit of things. What are your superpowers, so to speak? Like, what are you really good at, and how does yeah. that fit in within our wider orc as an investor? Yeah, um, you know that's that's an interesting point. I I I get what you mean. Um, but one of the things that I noticed and that a lot of people would notice is that, you know, when you're an entrepreneur, um, you're one of the worst hires to make because you don't actually are, unless you're like an engineer who worked in Google for 10 years, now you're starting a company, whatever, but like most like non-tech entrepreneurs, uh, or even tech entrepreneurs who've now started a company and done it, uh, for a few years, um, you're actually a horrible hire because, uh, or at least on paper, because you don't. You don't fit the mold, right? Like you don't necessarily have one specific skill. Um, and so like like an investor would love to talk to you uh, if they're thinking in terms of, I want to invest in this person. But like if it's about connecting you to a portfolio company, they have like two thoughts, right? Because they're like, like, like one of the things that I noticed when I came here was that it was like, like when you're trying to sort of join early stage companies, the founder or the investor who wants to connect you is having like, you know, two thoughts in their head. There's one thought which is on, can I trust this guy? Because in early stage companies, it's all about trust, right? So joining a big company like Facebook, they have a very streamlined process. Great. The process takes care of itself, right? Or reference. But but in an early stage company, it's all about, can I trust this person? And then it's about, okay, now what skills does this person bring in? Uh, and you'll see like a lot of times generalists in a new market uh, so somebody coming from India to the UK, if you're a generalist, um, it might be challenging uh, at at times. Or if you're an entrepreneur, it might be challenging because it's very hard for people to box you into one thing. And when you can't box somebody into one thing, then, you know, like what either they have to just give you a chance, be like, this person is smart. They've done so many different things. Like, you know, they figure it out. Or you join in an unstructured role, like, you know, like a chief of staff or something like that, you know, like a role which gives you a lot of those uh, flexibility. But like, that's, 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 that's a, 
it it can become a challenge if not positioned correctly is 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 what i would say that whole generalist thing as as a founder yeah fantastic insights like yeah very useful well, Marisha, thanks thanks very much for joining us it was an absolute pleasure to speak to you um i think our listeners will really benefit from the conversation and i was also going to say i'll probably pick up with you offline because it would be good to have a chat about uh startup ecosystem here in India because I'm going to be here for like the next six to nine months. Oh, so it'll, it'll be great to uh, to speak to you specifically about Bangalore and even Hyderabad if you have any contacts or experience yeah. there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Lots of folks. Uh, in fact, even, even Vizak has like this FinTech Valley and stuff like that, right? Like uh, it's just oh, great. Yeah. yeah I, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll ping you an email in, in the next couple of hours and then we can pick up and perhaps have a call about that because that would be great. Absolutely. Yeah. Happy to, happy to. Thanks. Now, uh, Rishav, it's a pleasure, man. Uh, when I'm next in Central, I'll give you a shower. We can meet up for a drink as well. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> always, always, always up for a drink. I've, I've learned that the UK is, and this was like super interesting that UK is an alcoholic country, man. Like, <laughs> and I think UK is the only country in the world where it's not frowned upon to have Hard liquor at 11.30 a.m. on a weekday. <laughs> it's classy. The country is, is a great thing, you know. Have a, have some scotch on the rocks in a nice suit in like a leather leather chair. Yeah, you look like the man. <laughs> on, only in the UK. Love it. <laughs> That's why I'm never leaving. <laughs> Wonderful. Cheers, man. But anyway, Rishab, take care of yourself, man. All the best. Take care. Take care. So take All care. the best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.